0: He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Because we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit." For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Before we open God's word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we are thankful for this opportunity to come together to be strengthened, encouraged, refreshed as we look at your word. That given the opportunity to take our eyes away from the details of life that surround us and distract us and are so often for us these days a cause of being unsettled, worried, anxious about different things, just to know that you're faithful and that your word is true no matter what is going on around us. The one thing that we must do, the one thing that we must not forget, is to reflect upon your word and study your word and to come to understand you more fully and that we may walk with you more intimately and father as we look at this chapter may we be impressed with who we are in christ it is not because of who we are but that we are in christ that we are in this new entity that is called the body of christ the household of god it is called also the bride of christ and father in this we rejoice because it is not due to anything that we have done, but according to your grace. It's not by works of righteousness which we've done, as we have recited, and also it's not that we should boast, but all the boasting is in you. For that we are grateful, and open our eyes to the truths of this passage this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We're continuing our study today. This passage, as I had said time and again over the last several weeks, is that is one of the foundational, if not the foundational chapter of all the chapters in the Bible on the church. More important than anything else, one of the things that we hold to be true about the church is that it is a universal body of believers. We believe that the church began on the day of Pentecost in A.D. 33. And we believe that the church will be on the earth as a witness to our Lord until he deems it time to call us home at the rapture of the church. And as we look at God's plan and purposes for the church, the one thing that stands out in this passage is that the church is a distinct entity from the saints who have gone before us, Old Testament Gentile saints from the age of the Gentiles from Adam to Abraham, Jewish saints from Abraham to Christ, Gentile saints that were saved during that time of the age of Israel as well. But here we see that there is something distinctive and unique and sacred about the church. You know, we we can get into a trap of thinking about church as what we do on Sunday morning. We go to Bible class on Sunday morning. We sometimes uh, think about this as, well, we have to go to church on Sunday morning. I could stay in bed a little while longer. I could do this a little while longer. I could do that a little while longer. Maybe I'll go fishing this morning and that's not the focus here. The focus is to understand who we are in Christ, that the church is a, that we think of most often is a local, a local projection, a local representation of this universal body of Christ and that we are being prepared to truly appreciate and to worship because we are in this unique entity. So that we should think differently about church, that this is an artistic creation of God, a masterpiece. These kinds of words are never said about Israel in the Old Testament. They are not said about the Gentile believers in the period before Israel. They're certainly not said of the tribulation saints or those who are in the millennium. That sets us apart, Uh, and we know the word in Scripture that is used for being set apart. That's the word holy. That's why I said it's sacred. These words all relate to one another. We're distinctive and we are uh, unique. Now, in this passage this morning, we're going to be introduced to the final idea that Paul is expressing in verses 11 to 22 about the universal church. What we learn here is that it is in the process of being built. And verse 21, it says, "In whom," that of course is in Christ, the whole building. That is introduces us again to this metaphor. There's several metaphors, and Paul switches between them. Okay, so you have to watch that because we can't make these metaphors uh, stand up and walk as absolutes. They're just they're just appeals to our common frame of reference. That relate to this. It's one new man. It's one body. It's the household of God. It is It is the church that is this building. So we have all of these different ideas that are present uh, here to try to communicate to us the, the living dynamic of the body of Christ that is being brought together today In a distinctive way, it is still being brought together. It is still in the process of growing. Verse 21, in whom the whole building being uh, fitted together grows. All of this is present tense, and we're growing into a holy temple. Now, we're going to probably not get to the concept of the holy temple in detail until next week. We'll introduce it this morning but this is a, a distinctive thing about uh, this passage, identifying the church, the body of Christ as a holy temple in the Lord. And it is in whom, that is in the Lord, we are also being built together for a dwelling place of the Holy of God in the spirit so lots to cover in there but that's that's where we're headed so this focal point this morning I'm just titling this the church as a holy temple i want to read through these first four verses so we catch what is going on here and then i think we need to go back and review some things because there are phrases and terms here that it's really easy to misinterpret and as I have read and studied through the commentaries, I have seen that a lot of people that I, that I am surprised about have mis, misunderstood it. In fact, there's one commentary that is I consider to be the best overall commentary on Ephesians, which was written by uh, Doctor Harold Honor, who was the head of the New Testament Department at Dallas Seminary. And he went to be with the Lord, I think, about 14 or 15 years ago, and this was his magnum opus, and he had taught Ephesians since the late 60s. So when you have taught it the way, you know, when this is your full-time job and you teach it every single year, you are getting uh, dozens every year. You get dozens and dozens and dozens of exegetical papers from students, You have students who are writing master's theses and doctoral dissertations on Ephesians. And you're grading these, you know, you just, the level of study and focus you have in one epistle like this is just, just phenomenal. And he has great, great insights. But I found him a little bit ambiguous here where one spot he would talk about the household of God as if it, included all the saints of all the ages, and then later on, not. So it's, it's difficult. And many times, as I have read through this, in ver- at the end of verse 19, that it appears that when it says that we're fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, that that includes all of the saints from all of the ages. But pay attention what happens in the next verse. "'Now therefore you're no longer strangers and foreigners,' Now that takes us back to verse 11, where as Gentiles, or verse 12, where Gentiles were strangers and they were um, aliens to to the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. So so he's picking up those ideas and he's saying you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Even in the English, you can figure out that the household of God is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And you can see how covenant theologians would take the idea that they assume that this is Old Testament prophets and New Testament church, but the word order tells us it's not talking about Old Testament prophets because then it would be prophets and apostles. And, and one of the things that I've noticed over the years is that you don't find covenant theologians, replacement theologians, talking very much about this passage from 11 to 22. We're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building, so we've been a body, now we're a building, being fitted together, present tense, growing or grows into a holy temple. That is a dwelling place. That's what a temple is. It's a dwelling place. So in this body, this building is an edifice. So it's it's t- looking at us not as individuals here for the dwelling of God, but as the church corporately is uh, Christ is is, and God is the one who dwells within us as, as the body. So see, Paul uses he's the corner, Jesus is the cornerstone and he's dwelling in the body. So it, 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 to describe what he's talking about goes almost beyond human language. So this is why he has these mixed metaphors. Um, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom also you are being built together. How many times have we seen that word together so far? Who does it refer to? Together, Jew and Gentile, okay? Being built together for a dwelling place of God in in the Spirit. So first I want to take us back through a quick little review, because as we focus here, we see that the end game in Paul's thought process is that we are a holy temple in the Lord. Now, we need to look at, be reminded of what that, the significance of that historically is, that before the church age began on the day of Pentecost in AD 33, things were quite a bit different. Israel, that is the physical genetic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, were appointed by God to a mission, and that mission was to be a kingdom of priests. God had called them to be a kingdom of priests, Exodus 19, a light to the world. In the, in the church age, we're the body of Christ. We're to be sent out. Jesus says, Where, wherever you go, um, baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to, uh, to uh, obey everything that I've taught you, all my commandments. So that's the mission of the church. We're to go. Go out. What's the mission of Israel? The mission of Israel was to stay and establish a kingdom that was supposed to be a physical testimony, a light to the world so that as people came there, they would see the difference between Israel and and the rest of the world. And that's one of the things Moses reminds them of early in the book of Deuteronomy that Israel was the people through whom God would reveal himself to the world they were going to be the the receptors of the revelation of God and the custodians of that scripture so that it would be preserved down through the through the ages at first a dwelling place of God was the tabernacle the hebrew word i mean for that is the mishkan shik- Shakan is the Hebrew word for dwelling place, for where you live, a house, a building. Mishkan, that's the verb to dwell somewhere, and the noun mishkan is the dwelling place, or the—and and it is the, how they refer to the temple, is the mishkan, the dwelling place. So God had a dwelling place physically among his people, not in his people, in the Old uh, Testament. You had the tabernacle, which was first constructed a year after they left uh, Egypt uh, during the year 1446, so it's completed 1445, and from 1445 to 959, God dwelt in the Temple between the cherubim on the ark of the covenant. He, I mean, excuse me. He dwelt in the tabernacle uh, for uh, over 300 years. It was at Shiloh, and then it was uh, they had various uh, movements that took place during the book of the time of First Samuel, and then it was brought to uh, the area of Jerusalem, and there uh, it was finally placed in the temple when it was built and dedicated in 959. And then after the destruction of, of Jerusalem in 586, nobody knows what happened to the Ark of the Covenant. The temple was destroyed. Uh, Ezekiel, you remember, had a vision of the Shekinah, and that word Shekinah, which is the root for Shekinah, means the dwelling place. Okay, Mishkan, Shekinah. All of these are based off the same same basic idea of the dwelling place. So we see we often think of Shekinah means glory. Shekinah doesn't mean glory. Shekinah is a word that ref- refers to the presence of God, and the presence of God is going to exhibit his glory. So it's an associated idea. So so Ezekiel saw the, the presence of God depart the temple, go out through the uh, eastern gate, cross the Kidron, up the Mount of Olives, and ascend to heaven. And so there's no presence of God that we know of in the second temple, which is built in 516. And it continued, although it was re, completely uh, uh, rebuilt during the time of Herod, it's still the same temple because they never stopped the sacrifices. So it's always referred to as the second temple, not a second and third temple. The third temple is the apostate temple of the period of the tribulation, and the fourth temple is the millennial temple. But there's always these dwelling places of God, the Old Testament, the the Mishkan, the tabernacle, then the temple, and then the second temple, and then you have in the future an apostate temple, and then you have the millennial temple. What's the temple in the church age? It's the body of Christ. I mean, this is a phenomenal concept that we are being built together to be a dwelling place. Now, in this context, we go back to the earlier verses. And in verse 11 Paul just reminds them that that you, who you were you were gentiles you were uncircumcised and all of that meant is that as as the unclean you can't come into the temple. Uh, and we studied this and we looked at the fact that they were originally set apart separate from Israel and they did not have any participation in the spiritual blessings of Israel during that time unless they became a full proselyte and, entered, and be, basically became a Jew. So they are five things. They're without Christ. They're aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Uh, that's a word that is picked up again in verse 19. Strangers from the covenant of promise. That word's not repeated, but a synonym is used in verse 19. And they are, they're without hope and without God in the world. Uh, they, they, Gentiles did not have a relationship to God. That doesn't mean those Gentiles were saved. We know that there were from the Old Testament, but as a class, they are separate. And then we have this phrase, but now. We'll come back to that in a minute. But now in Christ Jesus, you are brought, you who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I want you to notice this. We see three phrases here as we go through these first verses. It's through the blood of Christ through him and, um, and through the cross, not in that order, through the blood of Christ, through the cross, and through him. What does that tell you? That tells you the focus is on what Christ did on the cross. It's a focus on his work. Now I'm going to come back and tell you why that's important along the way, but, but that's important. It sets the stage. Context is everything. And when we understand the how these terms set the stage, then we're not going to make some mistakes when we get to 19 to 22. And then in 14 through 16, he talks about how the peace, is. first of all, the peace is making the both one. The both are the Jew and Gentile. They both are one. And that middle wall of separation is defined as the law in verse 15, and that is abolished. And with the result that he's doing what? He's creating in himself One new man. So the both are one in verse 14. That one is now called the one new man in verse 15. That's making peace. So the emphasis all through here, including all the way down to 22, is peace in the body. That he might reconcile both Jew and Gentile in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the, the enmity. So through the blood, through the cross. And so I use these Im- images to portray this, that the barrier between God and man has been removed. So that there is, uh, that's one aspect, that's the objective aspect of reconciliation that took place on the cross. So that Jew and Gentile, by faith in Christ's work on the cross, are united in the church, which is also called the body of Christ. And I'm belaboring this because in conversations I've had with a couple of different pastors, there is such a tendency to misread this. And as I walked my way with Dr. Ice yesterday through this, he almost slipped a few times. And I I said, look at this, go back. Let's go back and look at all these words from me. He said, yeah, you're right. Okay. It's really he had been in this passage in a while, so uh, it's really easy though to slip. The church is the body of Christ, made up of Jew and Gentile. There's reconciliation. Okay, now what we've seen here is that the phrase "we both" is the same as one new man. "We both" refers to the one new man. And the one new man is referred to then as one body. That's important. It's real obvious in verses 11 to 18. We get to 17 and 18. He came, that's at the first advent, and he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far off. See, Jesus had a ministry to Gentiles during the first advent but they aren't getting the peace that this is talking about because the cross hadn't happened yet there was a peace prior to uh uh prior to the cross but it's not the same and i use the illustration of a border we have peace with canada there you don't have armed guards out there uh, on the border between uh the United States and Canada, you don't have sentries, you don't have machine gun nests and barbed wire and everything. There's a state of peace there. But it's not the same as as driving from Texas to Louisiana. That border has peace, but it's a totally different kind of peace. Okay? So that's what we see here is two kinds of peace. There's a peace that was available to Gentiles in the Old Testament but it doesn't bring them together as one with the Jews, with Israel. But after the cross, they're brought together so that the peace before the cross is like the peace at the border between Canada and the U.S., two different countries that stay separate, but you have in the border between Texas and Louisiana, you have a different kind of peace, and we together are part of the same nation. So now we come to the fun passage. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And it's interesting how Paul begins this. We get a glimpse of this, that there's something else going on here because of the way the uh, New King James translates this at the beginning. It says, now, therefore. And if you have other translations, you will have other uh, con- other. Uh, prepositions there of conclusion because there's actually two that are used in the Greek ara is, would mean therefore if it were just there by itself you would translate it therefore and if uh, the other one un was there you would translate it therefore but what Paul has done and there's no evidence that this compound is used anywhere in classical uh, Greek literature in literature prior to the scripture so it's a Paulism, where he puts these words together in a new way because he wants to grab everybody's attention. He has he has gotten more excited as he's talked about the body of Christ as he's gone through this, and now he's telling us the consequences of this by using these two or by combining these two prepositions. And uh, uh, Honer quotes a grammar in his uh, commentary, which states, although both are logical, ara, or ara, primarily expresses a lively feeling of interest. What that means is Paul's alerting the reader by using these two words to expect some sort of significant mind-blowing conclusion. This is the consequence of everything that he said in 11 to 18, and now he wants us to really pay attention to this because this is exciting stuff. He says, You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. To show the significance of this grammatically, I charted it out like this. I want you to notice in the translation at the top I have added a second you are in the new king james it leaves it out in the translation but it's there in the greek the greek has two verbs you are you are for for emphasis and it, they are they that expresses the the and emphasizes the contrast between the two positions. And he says, you are, and then you have a negative. You are no longer strangers and foreigners. The word for foreigners indicates someone who's not a citizen. So the reason he changes from using uh, the synonym up in verse, uh, 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 verse 12, where he talks about, uh, the fact that they are strangers from the covenants of the promise, and here he uses uh, he uses a different word for for foreigners it 's indicating that you 're not a citizen because he 's going to use the uh, the word in, in uh, uh, at the end there that we are now citi- fellow citizens, so he wants that that contrast there uh, we 're no longer str- strangers and foreigners, but and i 've capitalized that because this is a strong Strong contrast here, but fellow citizens in the household of God. And he wants us to pay attention to it. Think through with me a minute what we've seen in these contrasts in this chapter. First of all, Paul starts the chapter saying you were born spiritually dead in chapter 2, verse 1. And then we get to chapter 2, verse 4, and we read, but God. But God made us alive together in Christ. First contrast. The second time we see a contrast is when we get down to verse 11, and he says, you were once Gentiles in the flesh. But then we get to uh, verse 13 and it says, but now in Christ Jesus. And now we get our third contrast where he's saying, you were strangers and foreigners, but now you're fellow citizens in the household of God. He wants us to really pay attention to this. There's another, I like to point out these little things, um, there's another reason he does this: is that there are uh, d- d- two different ways that you can express contrast in Greek. One is with a, another conjunction called de, which sometimes means and, and sometimes be but. It can be just as strong as the preposition that you, I mean, the conjunction that's used here, Allah. But he uses de in the first two. But when he gets to this one, he really wants us to pay attention to it, so he shifts to Allah. And that just th- those are the little literary things that you see that a writer does to draw your attention to certain things that he is saying, so that you wait a minute, wait a minute. This is if we were writing today in English, somebody would be using boldface and italics and changing all kinds of different fonts and making it all cluttered. But they did it through the use of, of language and grammar. So he really wants us to pay attention to that there's this major shift that's taken place being excluded from Israel. And we saw that that meant that it's that when he says at that time, that's old Testament. That's not at that time when you were unsaved, but at that time as a class, you were those four things you're excluded from the blessings of Israel and but now he says, in Christ Jesus, you've been brought near. Now, that's important because he tells us that this new state is a state that is not true of unsaved Gentiles, but it's only true of saved Gentiles. And they've now post-cross been brought near. This tells us that this cannot in any way be applied to them becoming uh becoming linked to Old Testament saints, whether Old Testament Gentile saints in the age of the Gentiles or Old Testament Jewish saints. He, he's, he's not, it's not something that is, that is retroactive. And the reason I say that is because when we go to this next phrase that we need to look at, the household of God it appears, if we just stop here at the end of verse nineteen, that the household of God would include the two groups. It looks like in English, the saints and the members of the household of God. And we might think, Oh, well, maybe the saints refers to the Old Testament saints and the household of God is the refers to the Jews. And that all of this we're all together in one household. And that therefore <clears throat> there's not a distinction between Israel and the church. That's what covenant the- theologians and replacement theology folks will, t- will say. But that's not possible the way this is set up. We are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The word household is a word that is used to refer to people of the same household, people who are a close kin, uh, people who are uh, family family members, and so there's something more intimate here uh, and that is taking place. And the intimacy that is taking place that runs all through this section is that which occurs because the barrier between Jew and Gentile has been removed. So we're just not talking about uh, joining up with Old Testament saints. We're talking about a totally... New entity. And we see that because we go back and look at what I emphasized so many times already is the way in which this entity is described. We both, okay, in the early chapters, that dividing wall is down, so we're both. Uh, earlier in 2, 5, and 6, we we together are, we are raised together in Christ, or we are made alive together in Christ, we're raised together and we're seated together in the heavenlies. Jew and Gentile, it's all about this new thing that God is doing, bringing Jew and Gentile together, where the we both equals Jew and Gentile, they are now in one new man, he calls them. They are one body, he says next. And now he, he says that's the household of God. So the household of God is not any different. It has to be interpreted in context. The household of God is the same entity as the both, the one new man and the one body. And this equals the universal church, the body of Christ. So you, this, this so clearly teaches the distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. And this is fundamental, as Dr. Ryrie pointed out, this is one of the three key elements that distinguishes a dispensationalist from non-dispensationalists, the distinction between God's plan for Israel and God's plan for the church. And if you read in uh, Covenant Theologians, what they will say is that the Gentiles become part of Israel. We are the new Israel. And there's no place in the New Testament that ever, ever calls us the new Israel. There is a place in Galatians 6 where, God, where Paul says greet, says to the Galatians, greet the Israel of God. He's not talking about the church because he's already addressing the church. Why would he tell the people he's addressing to greet the Israel of God? They're clearly a distinct group within the church are within the area where they are. so when he says "Greet the Israel God," he's, he's talking to the Galatian believers and telling them to greet those who are there who are the Jews, a distinct group. So he is saying, now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners but fellow citizens with these saints and I've highlighted this because you in the Greek you have one article that precedes these two groups showing that they are closely linked together. The saints and the members of the household, they are viewing them as, uh, as, a, as the same group of individuals with the saints and the members of the household of God. So that theref- therefore we are this new entity now, a new household, a new family There's a new level of intimacy that should uh, characterize the church. And this goes back to the same idea that was present in 11 through 13, that Christ is now our peace because he has broken down the dividing wall and through his death we have been brought near. And this is true not just for Jew and Gentile, but remember Gentile refers to all ethnicities, It refers to Africans, it refers to Arabs, it refers to Indians, it refers to Asians, it refers to uh, Europeans, it refers to Anglo-Saxons, it refers to everybody that we are all brought near and so there's no basis whatsoever for any kind of racial or ethnic bias because we're all one in Christ. And so, as I defined it a few weeks ago, that for the Christians, racism really it takes place when any Christian lets any ethnic or cultural or subcultural distinction cause a separation between him and other Christians. When those cultural, subcultural, or ethnic distinctions are more important then the unity in the body of Christ, then you've got a serious problem with the Word of God. And so we are united together in this new body as members of a family, members of the household of God. Now the next thing that tells us that the household of God is not related to Israel at all in the Old Testament is what happens at the beginning of Israel verse 20. Verse 20 begins with the, with the phrase having been built in the English translation. It represents the translation of an aorist participle in the Greek. And we know that an aorist participle, adver- the, uh, uh, that if it doesn't have the article, it is adverbial. It's modifying a verb. For those of you who still struggle with grammar, Where's the verb? You are, and you are up in verse nineteen. You are no longer strangers, you are fellow citizens with the saints, and then it's having been built. And what this tells us is that that unity is on the basis of or cause the cause of which is that we are being built because we have been built, or because having been built. So what that's telling us is that those who make up the fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of Christ, of God, are being built. What are they being built on? They're being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Right away that tells us this cannot be Old Testament. It cannot, household of God cannot include anybody from the Old Testament because they're not built on the apostles, and you can't come along and say well apostles means new testament and prophets means old testament because it doesn't say the prophets and the apostles that would be the correct order if you're talking about old testament prophets and new testament new testament apostles but this is talking about new testament apostles and new testament prophets and in the early church you had revelatory gifts that were given by the holy spirit before the canon was completed now we studied that in first corinthians 13 8 to 13 where it talks about the perf- when the perfect comes these temporary gifts are going to be removed and if you recall when you go back to uh, verse 8 it starts talking about two specific gifts knowledge and wisdom It includes tongues later, but it talks about knowledge and wisdom and that they were incomplete. The language that you see in the translation is that they're they're partial. It means they're incomplete. And then in verse 9, Paul says, but when the perfect comes, which is not a good translation, It, it is that which completes, that which brings to completion. When that which brings to completion comes that which is incomplete, knowledge and prophecy, the gifts of knowledge of prophecy, will be done away with, will we'll cease. They'll be gone. They're not going to be there. It says they will, the, when the perfect comes, then they will, uh, they will be gone. You don't need them anymore because you have a completed canon of Scripture. And so what we learn is that knowledge and wisdom were revelatory gifts. Prophecy was a revelatory gift. Uh, New Testament prophecy and apostle, of course. In, I think the apostles had all all the gifts, and that they that also was revelatory. Now, in the early church, as they were developing or recognizing that's a better word, as they were recognizing which books were worthy of of keeping and which ones were not, they had to develop certain standards how do you know when this book is really from god and the one we need to keep and let's bring it down to a real personal level when you get a knock on your door at three in the morning and the swat team is out there and they want your bible are you going to give your life for the epistle of barnabas or are you going to give your life for keeping the epistle to the romans Okay, You want to make sure that if you're going to go through all this suffering, you're going to do it for the word of God and not the word of somebody else. And so they had to develop these. And one of the rules are canons. That's what the word canon means. One of the rules was that it was either written by an apostle or by an apostolic associate. Now, I think that these apostolic associates, the ones that weren't apostles that wrote in the New Testament, uh, James and Luke um, maybe the writer to the Hebrews, because we don't know who wrote the uh, epistle to the Hebrews, Jude, that these were prophets. They're associated with apostles, but they had the New Testament gift of prophets. So we have the the foundation that is laid for the church is laid by the apostles and the prophets, but the chief cornerstone is Christ. Now, I'll talk a little bit more about what it means to be a chief a chief cornerstone and the significance of that. But right now, what we want to look at as we look at this particular phrase where we have the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, what is the significance of the apostles and prophets? Some people say, well, it is their doctrine. Some people say it is them as persons. Well, let's think about how we answer that question. Because in the same way that they are the foundation, in that same way, Christ is the chief cornerstone. So what's the number one rule in interpretation? If you don't know it by now, location, location, location. Context, context, context. So what is, are we talking about the person of Christ here? Or are we talking about the work of Christ here? How would we answer that? Let's look at the context. The context has been focusing us on the work of Christ. The way that this peace is brought about is through his blood, through the cross, and through him. It's all focusing on what happened at the cross. It's not focusing so much on the person of Christ. It's focusing on the work of Christ. What makes Christ the chief cornerstone? It's not excluding his person, but it's focusing on it is his work. That is what brought down the barrier between Gentile and Jew. That is what wiped out the barrier between man and God. It is that that becomes the chief cornerstone for the church. It is his work. So if it's the work of Christ, then it must be the persons of the apostles, right? No, that would not be logical. It would be the work of the apostles. What was the work of the apostles? they expanded the church they they traveled, they witnessed they evangelized but the most important part of the apostles and prophets is they wrote scripture It it was the revelation that God gave them that they wrote down the foundation of the church is the work of the apostles and prophets and the work of Christ that's the foundation now the second thing we have to ask is How many times when you're building a building, think about one of those, they change their name so much, I'm never sure what the tall buildings downtown are anymore. You take any of those tall buildings, 60 stories, 70 stories, how many foundations are there? There's only one. You only lay it once. You don't lay it in every generation. You don't lay it in every century. The reason I say that is because what happens in the charismatic movement is that they think that these gifts, apostle and prophet, continue today because we we continue to need new revelation. Well, this passage completely refutes that. In fact, several years ago there was a book that came out, and this is uh, there are lots of these kinds of books that are out there. They're called four views, or three views, or five views of sanctification, of eschatology, of the rapture, of you know whatever it is, and where where scholars have these areas of disagreement, and so you get uh, one guy who writes from one perspective, and then the other three guys will critique what he wrote and show where they 're different and and they 're really good if you 're a pastor if you 're a seminary student and thinking through what are the what are all the all of the issues so a book came out on i think it was three views on the charismatic gifts came out i don 't know fifteen twenty years ago. One of my former professors at Dallas, who's now over at Southwestern Baptist Seminary, wrote a chapter on tongues. And when it came out, I read it. Tommy read it. We were talking to each other, and we said, "Isn't that interesting?" He never talks about First Corinthians thirteen. Because see, for a lot of people, they don't they don't go to First Corinthians thirteen because they don't they they don't think the perfect refers to scripture, and they're they're all confused and wrong there. But we've covered that in the past. What did he do? His whole argument for why tongues doesn't continue and revelatory gifts doesn't continue was based on Ephesians 2:20. That settles it, really. It just it, it, it confirms 1 Corinthians 13:8 to 13, 8-13, and 1 Corinthians 13:8 to 13 8-13 confirms it. It's not like one's better than the other, but it, this this is showing that. You don't need revelation to go beyond the foundation because you only use the foundation lay the foundation one time. So you only have one set of apostles and one set of prophets and their work is the giving of the scripture and new revelation. And on that basis, uh on, on that basis, that foundation, God is building his church. So that is the church. Uh, the foundation of the church is the Apostles and Prophets and Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone now in our culture a cornerstone is different from what a cornerstone was in the ancient world in our Culture, a cornerstone is often maybe, sometimes it might be a capstone, sometimes it is something that is set in at the end that is a statement of dedication and sometimes they'll hollow it out or put something behind it, a time capsule behind it or something of that nature, but that's not what a cornerstone is in, in the ancient world. A cornerstone in the ancient world was, was the orientation point for the whole foundation And for the building, Uh, they would lay the cornerstone and then they would use the cornerstone as the basis for all of their measurements and the alignment of the uh, different sides of the building. So the cornerstone is that which everything else in the building relates to and conforms to. And that fits the image of Christ here. He's the head of the body in other places. Here he is the chief cornerstone. Everything in the building gets its meaning, its alignment, its orientation, everything from the cornerstone, and everything orients to Christ. The apostles and prophets, all their revelation, everything orients and relates to Christ. So verse 20 tells us that we are being, we have been built, the foundation's been laid, the cornerstone was Christ's work on the cross. And then in verse 21 we read, in whom, that is in Christ, the whole building being fitted together. Now here we have a present participle. The whole building being fitted together. The shift from aorist, which is a past tense participle, to present tells us this is talking about the, the, this building is still being built. It is still in progress. It is a present work of God. The whole building is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, a dwelling place. That's what temple means. Here the Greek word is the word naos, there were two words in Greek that were used to describe the temple. The first is the Greek word naos, n a o s, and the second word is hiros, hieros, h i e r o s, hieros. And hieros, we have words that, um, like you talk about, some of the the, the writing in 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 uh, Egypt is heretic script, and that's it's the writing of the priests, things like that. So so. Um, like hieroglyphic. A glyph is, a, is a, an image or a picture. So if you see one picture on, on, on a stele or something, that's a glyph. The writing is called hieroglyphic because it's the writing that was primarily used by the priest uh, at that time. So that's your little lesson in words for the time being. So this is, heros is the word that would be used to describe the entire temple complex, so you have the outer outer courtyards, the courtyard of the Gentiles, the courtyard of the women. Uh, so you again, it, it it would if that was the word used here, it would include all of it, all of the uh, outer areas. But Naos is the holy place, the holy of holies, and the holy place. It is the inner sanctum, the the where God dwelt. And so this is important for a couple of reasons. First of all, that which was in the outer courtyards would be unclean. And I've developed the argument further that, that you hear the argument against demon possession that Christians can't be de- demon-possessed because Holy Spirit dwells in you. And people have tried to poke holes in that, that that uh, various things unclean took place in the temple. But the temple word here is naos. Which means the inner sanctum, and nothing unclean could go into the inner sanctum where God dwelt, and so that strengthened the argument against uh, demon possession of the of the believer and Here we have it reiterated that's stated in first uh, corinthians six nineteen and so we 'll look at those passages next time we 'll come back and talk about the significance of what we find in verse 21 and verse 22, that we are growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom also you are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. What does that mean? That will be next Sunday with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning, to be reminded of all that you have done for us. Sometimes we can think of salvation as something simple because it's simple on our side. We just believe in Christ who died for us and we're saved. But on your side, so much had to be dealt with. Sin is such a complex thing that all the dimensions, all the facets had to be dealt with, all the legal issues had to be dealt with. And all of that was accomplished on the cross and so father we glory in the cross because it is our salvation and we are so thankful that we have such a such a salvation that is not based on what we do or who we are but on what Christ did and who he who he is Father, we pray for any that might be listening this morning or listening from a recording of this message that they might know that there's only one way to salvation. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. By trusting in Christ, we can have everlasting life. And then that's it, nothing else. And once that happens, we become a creature in Christ. And what Paul is talking about in These verses is some of the aspects that are the result, the consequence of the cross and of our faith in you. So, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things and make the gospel clear to those who need to understand it. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.